The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. We're continuing our uh, series in the uh, life of Abraham um, this morning, and we have been in the Abraham series, and we've covered 16 chapters. It took us five months to cover 16 chapters. In the last final weeks, final three weeks, we're going to cover 24 chapters in three weeks. And uh, so Shannon walked us through seven chapters on the life of Jacob last week. Next week, Chase is going to end the series on the life of Joseph, covering 13 chapters one week. And I just get Genesis 35. So I've got it easy. So we're going to look at how God moves Jacob from complacency to completion and how we battle complacency as well. So look with me at Genesis 35, verse 1, and we're going to see how he is getting prepared for what God has for him next. Genesis 35, verse 1. It says, God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. So God tells Jacob to take his family to this place called Bethel and to make an altar once he gets there. But before they go, Jacob knows they've got to do some house cleaning. You see, when they fled from Laban earlier, which was, Laban was Rachel's father, Jacob's wife, Rachel, she stole her father's idols. Now, why would she do that? Well, this is really her way of of hanging on to a little bit of security. She's about to sojourn off with her husband and family, and so she's feeling insecure, so she wants to hang on to a little bit of security. So she takes her father's idols with her, And it might be surprising to hear that Jacob's family is hanging on to some idols, but it shouldn't be that surprising because we do the exact same thing today. We have our own ways of trying to find some security in our own, in our old identity. So it's taken some time, but Jacob finally does the right thing because apparently they've been, they've kept these idols with them for all these years. And they're just now relinquishing the idols. So Jacob calls his family to repentance and the family responds by giving up the idols. And in verse four, it says they gave up their, their earrings. Now, ladies, don't be alarmed by that. That just means that um, at that time, either the idols or the people wore earrings and these were considered tokens of idolatry in that day. They were used in idol worship. So Jacob takes these valuable items and he buries them under this tree. And there's so much imagery that I want you to see from the New Testament here. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And he lists off several sins in Colossians chapter 3. And then he calls those things idolatry. And whenever I talk about idolatry, you need to make sure you understand that all sin is idolatry. I think most of us think of idolatry being varsity sin and everything else is goes down from there but all sin is an attempt to replace God with something so all sin is idolatry and I think we don't normally think of sin in those terms 
Today, of course, we may, we may not have the statues. Like, we just cut out the middleman. We go straight to the heart. Idolatry is how we tend to do it. But all sin is idolatry. And whenever preaching the Old Testament, we normally wait until the end to bring the whole thing to Jesus and the gospel. But we're doing that right out of the gate today. Because the opening of Genesis 35 is a slow, underhand pitch right over the plate. And so, what does it mean to put sin to death? Well, it means to take severe measures to conquer sin. In Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus describes it as cutting off the hand or gouging out the eye. And if you're new to the Bible, he's not saying to literally do that, but he is saying to take extreme measures to deal with sin. So when I talk to my students or I talk to parents about what that looks like, I'll ask questions like, if you're struggling with certain things, looking at stuff on your phone or on the computer, then what steps are you going to take to gouge out the eye, metaphorically speaking? And when it comes to the Christian life, there has to be this physical, external war sometimes on sin. And so putting sin to death, it looks like something physical where you literally handle sin in a very physical way where you say, we're going to put this sin to death and we're going to cut off the supply lines of sin. This is what it means to put sin to death. And oftentimes I'll get either a student or a parent that's throwing their hands up and they're saying, you know, I don't know why I keep doing the same things or why he or she keeps doing the same things over and over again. And this is usually someone who isn't willing to take this first step and just say, hey, what's, what is the eye that you're going to gouge out? What is the hand that you're going to cut off? Because battling against sin often takes this kind of step in order for us to battle against sin. And so whenever we look at more closely at Paul's writings, there is a theme, and it's this. Identity precedes activity. In Colossians chapter 3, he says, because you have died with Christ, put sin to death. In, in the works of Paul, position always should lead to action. He always seems to cover identity first, position first. Now, because of your position, because of your identity, here's how you should live. And so identity precedes activity. And in Colossians chapter 3, he says, because you have died with Christ, you put sin to death, and because of our identity in Christ, we take action. We cannot separate these two things. Some people will give lip service to their new identity. They'll say things like, I'm a child of God, I'm a son of God, my identity is in Christ, but then that never leads to action. Other people might do the actions, but forget to link it to their new identity, understanding that whatever they do, do in their action or activity, it's got to flow from this newfound identity in Christ. And so we've got to have both. Both have to remain together. So when you go back to Jacob, what does Jacob do with the idols? Where does he put them? He buries them in the ground. What do you and I do when we put something to death? We go and we bury it in the ground. You see, I think there are some of us in here this morning that we, we need some house cleaning. And the first step might be to put sin to death in this literal, physical way. Doesn't mean you're perfect. Doesn't mean that thoughts don't come into your mind, obviously, but 
What are the supply lines of sin that you're, you're compromising with and not putting those things to death? Because when you put something to death, that means you literally bury it in the ground, as you see in this story here. And of course, that's harder than it sounds because these idols weren't cheap. These are like, these are precious metals. These are, these are valuable. And so you might say it like this. Putting sin to death will always feel like we're losing something of great value. So again, when I talk to parents of my students or my students, I'll hear them say things like, no, but I, I really need this. Or I really need access to certain things. Or I really need whatever the fill in the blank. And I will tell you that, yeah, putting sin to death is always going to feel a bit like gouging out the eye or cutting off the arm. And so when they say, no, I really need this in my life, I'd say, yeah, more than you need your, your eye or your hand. Jesus gives us that image in Matthew chapter 5 for a reason. Because anytime you and I put sin to death, it's always going to feel like we're losing something that we cannot live without. And the same is true in this Jacob's story. They're taking something very valuable in that day and putting it in the dirt because it's where it belongs. There's another parallel here with Paul in Colossians chapter 3 and what Jacob says here. After telling them to put away idols, he says, change your garments. So what is that about? Well, this is a purification ritual. So later, you're going to see in Exodus, when the people are at Mount Sinai, God tells them to wash their garments, and we see it again at the tabernacle in the temple. God wants them to, God wants them to see an external picture of what he offers us on the inside. And so we see in the tabernacle and temple these, these purification rituals, washing and cleansing, because God wants the people to see that what's happening to them on the outside, he's doing for them on the inside. And so Jacob says here, he says, go change your garments. And so this is the same image here. And so just as we put sin to death, there is always something to put on. So when you go back to Paul again in some of his writings, it's never just put sin to death and that's it. But there is something to put on. We put on the new self. We put on Christ. In the same way that Jacob is saying here, go change your garments, put on something new, we're supposed to put on the new self and put on Christ when you look at the ideas in the New Testament. So the Christian life is not about just avoiding the negative, but it's about embracing this new identity that we have in Christ. So as God prepares Jacob for and his family for the promised land, he wants them to put away their idols so they can be set apart and worship him at this place called Bethel. But I want you to see the significance of this place called Bethel. It's really important because Bethel was a center of pagan idolatry and worship. And so when God says, I want you to go to Bethel, I want you to build an altar there to me, this is God driving a stake into the heart of pagan idolatry. He is reclaiming the land. God is reclaiming the land as Jacob moves over to Bethel to set up this altar of worship, to worship his God. So they're being prepared for this journey to Bethel. Then we have consecration. This is, look at verse five. It says, 
And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakuth. As Jacob and his family move towards Bethel, there's this terror from God that falls upon the cities to protect them as they go on their journey. And once they enter into Bethel, Jacob builds this altar and he renames the place El Bethel. Now once again, watch how God is reclaiming the land here. So the name Luz was the Canaanite name. The name Bethel means house of God. So when Jacob builds this altar, he renames the place El Bethel because it means God of Bethel. So remember, God is reclaiming this place from Canaanite worship. And that's reflected not just in the altar, but in the name of the place. So the place gets a new name. And it's also here that Rebecca, so Rebecca was Isaac's wife. Rebecca has a nurse named Deborah. And Deborah passes away here in this story. You're going to see, this is, a, this is kind of a sad chapter. This is, we're going to see three funerals play out in this chapter. So Jacob buries her by an oak tree and renames that place Alon Bakuth, which means oak of weeping. Look at the next verse. God appeared to Jacob again, and when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him, and God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. And then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. And he poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. So God reclaims the land by renaming it, but then God reclaims people by renaming them. And so Jacob gets this new name, Israel. Now up to this point, Jacob's life had been all about conflict, conflict with Esau, with Isaac, with Laban, conflict against Shechem's family in Genesis 34. You want to read a, hor a horrific chapter, read Genesis 34 sometime next week. But the name Jacob means striving against others or deceiver. Anybody in here with that name, by the way, Jacob, by chance? Watch out, we sit next to that person, right? But this is what it means. But Israel means striving, but striving with God. So all of his life, his whole identity has been about striving against other people, conflict with others, but now God's gonna use that quality of his in Jacob and redeem it and reclaim it. He's now gonna strive with God. And so he gets a new name. Now, if you remember last week, Shannon talked about this 
In an early, earlier chapter, he's already been renamed. Now, why is it happening again right here? Well, the reason is because, I think the same is true for you and I, that we need to understand our new identity over and over and over again. And the same is true for Jacob. And so God's reminding him, remember, I changed your name. I changed your identity. And so up until this point, his life has been about scheming and half-hearted obedience. And God brings him back to this place called Bethel, the place where God appeared to him when he fled from Esau, his brother. Now, this was a familiar place for Jacob, but God wants him to see it in a new light. You see, it's a powerful thing to see an old place with fresh eyes. I think of when um, I first came to Texas in my early, my 19 years old or 20, and I first came to Texas, and I looked at a map, and I thought, man, Texas is really close to Colorado. (laughs) And then I got here, and I realized, when you make that drive, that's only true on a map, right? Make the drive, it's not that close to Colorado. When I first came here, I had some friends that we would go snowboarding quite a bit, and so I took up snowboarding and really enjoyed going to Colorado and that, you know, seeing that state and, uh, and experiencing it for um, all that I had to offer there. And so as a single, I was going to Colorado a decent amount and really enjoying it. And then my wife was in Colorado for two years for her master's degree when she was up there doing Christian counseling degree. I didn't know her then, but then she came back to Texas. Then we actually ended up meeting and got married. And so then we uh, returned at some point as a married couple to Colorado and enjoyed that aspect of seeing Colorado. And then, but there's nothing better than going back to Colorado as parents. And so we, we told my kids a few years ago, we said, we're going to take you guys to Colorado because there's these things called mountains. And now listen, when I said that in last service, everyone's texting me saying, you know, Dave, Texas has mountains. I'm like, I know that, but not here, right? And so um, we take our kids to Colorado, and it was really cool as you're making the drive and you're seeing the, the train start to change, and their eyes just get really big and seeing images like this, and it was so cool now seeing Colorado through their perspective, you see, for us, it was going back to an old place. Maybe a place had become, you know, been there, done that. But now we're seeing it through new eyes, fresh perspective, as we see our kids get excited about where we're taking them. This is really a great image of how we move out of complacency, I think. Warren Wearsby says it like this. A backslidden believer does not need a new experience to get right with God. He needs only to reaffirm the old experience in a new way. Many of us, whenever we're struggling spiritually, we think we need something new. We need a new podcast, another sermon, another experience another conference, another retreat, and those things are helpful and blessings from God. But listen, you can't expect something else to infuse you and do it for you in that way. 
It's not the old experience. It's not the new experience that you need. You need to experience. You need to, the old experience, but affirmed in a new way. You need a deeper understanding of what you already know. This is kind of what Jacob's doing here. Jacob had gone to Bethel in his youth, but now there was a depth that was missing before. As he's lived his life and schemed throughout his life, he's now got some life experience, and he is able to see things with a fresh perspective as he goes back to Bethel. Whenever we're young in our faith, we hear about the gospel, and it's powerful, and it's life-changing, and I'm sure you can relate to this, but if we stay faithful in our walk with Christ, we begin seeing the same truth with far deeper understanding. When I first heard about the concept of grace as a young person, it was profound to me, but all the more profound as I lived my life and began to actually show grace to people or receive grace from people, you begin to see grace with far deeper understanding than you did in your youth. So if you're getting kind of bored or complacent in your faith, I encourage you to go listen to some stories. Go ask someone this week to share their life story with you and their faith journey with you. One of the best things for you is for you to see Jesus anew through someone else's eyes. With our high school students on Sunday morning for the, this spring semester, about once a month, we are putting a leader on, our, on the stage at the Outback, and the Sunday morning sermon is a life story of one of our leaders. And I'll tell you, the concepts that they talk about are not that profound. It's just, it's grace, it's surrender, it's community. It's the same thing we, we talk about all the time. But what happens is when they see it in the context of someone's life story, our students begin to see, oh, that person went through that. That's kind of what I'm walking through right now. And they begin to see the Christian faith through someone else's eyes, and it reinvigorates their own faith and sort of shocks them out of their complacency. Growing in our faith is relearning our identity in Christ again and again and again. That's really what sanctification is. It's you relearning your new identity in Christ over and over and over. And that's what God's doing with Jacob here as he reminds him who he is. I think some of you this morning need to be reminded of who you are in Christ. Your identity in Christ. You need a reminder of who you are in him. So we've seen preparation and consecration. Now we come to a a difficult section here in the story. Look at verse 16. Then they journeyed from Bethel when they were still some distance from Ephrath. Rachel went into labor And she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Onai. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. So as they're on this journey, Rachel is pregnant with Benjamin and she goes into labor and things take a turn for the worst. 
And the midwife knows she's dying, and Rachel knows it as well. And so to comfort her, the midwife tells her about her new son. And she names him Ben-Onai, which means son of my sorrow. But then Jacob renames him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. You see, there's this bitter irony that hangs over the death of Rachel. Because earlier when she couldn't get pregnant, in Genesis 30, verse 1, she is screaming at Jacob, give me children or I shall die. And now here she is, dying while giving birth. So this is, this is a sad chapter in the story. We've already had one funeral and now another. And in the midst of God reminding Jacob who he is and deepening his faith, there is also this deep sorrow. At times while God is doing amazing things in us, it is still mixed with all kinds of suffering and loss. Something we're all too familiar with as a church. I heard one person say it like this, spiritual victory does not exempt us from suffering. And I want you to see in the story, this, listen, I think where we live in the U.S., we don't grieve all that well. We're not okay with sitting in sadness. I think the Old Testament gets a lot more right than we do today. We don't grieve all that well. So what I'm going to say to you is not meant to say that we should not, we should grieve. We absolutely should grieve. But I want you to see in the story here that Jacob's being called to Bethel. And these tragedies happen along the way. And he's grieving. We see at the end of his life that he's still grieving. The loss of Rachel. But he doesn't let the sorrow and the suffering keep him from the journey. He stays going to Bethel. He keeps he keeps going where God's called him to go. And so we have the tragedy of Rachel's death here, but then the tragedy continues. It says, while Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Another tragedy, but a different kind. And this is connected to, the, to Rachel's death. You see, Reuben is Jacob's oldest son, and Jacob had two wives. He had Leah and Rachel, and they each had a maidservant. Leah had Zilpah, and Rachel had Bilhah. And Reuben is Leah's son, and all this time, Jacob has favored Rachel. And so now that Rachel has died, Reuben decides to make a power move. And he thinks that Bilhah will become the new favorite because she was attached to Rachel and leaving his mother out once again. So what does he do? He seduces Bilhah, knowing if he violates her, Jacob's never gonna touch her again. And she'll be consigned to what's called living widowhood. And now maybe his mother, Leah, would finally have preeminence. But then this leads to all kinds of consequences. When Jacob dies, the blessing ends up going to Joseph, not to Reuben because of his sin and his desecration. And all this jealousy and rivalry and strife is what eventually gets Joseph sold into slavery in Egypt. And so this, this event has all kinds of ripple effects out into the family. 
because of Reuben's power grab. And this is what always happens to us when we grab for power. We miss out on what we're trying to gain, end up sending ripple effects and affecting other people's lives. And remember, all this didn't happen in a vacuum. Jacob's life was about scheming, and now his son is doing the same exact thing. So Reuben desecrates the institution of marriage and sexuality, and then we come to the final scene of reunification between Jacob and Esau, and it says, skip down to verse 27, and Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. So here's Jacob returning home to his father, and he gets to see his dad one last time. So don't miss the significance of this moment, because Jacob and Esau, they had so much conflict and animosity toward each other. Who's going to get the birthright when their father Isaac dies? So there's an, an irony hanging over the death of Isaac as well, because it's in Isaac's death that they come back together reunified. I think death has a way of doing that for people. So what is this chapter really all about? We're seeing Jacob move from complacency to completion. You and I can take comfort knowing that God finishes what he starts. And he does the same thing for you and I. Right here we see the gospel in this narrative. I'm reminded of Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 where it says, Paul says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So the same God that's at work moving Jacob from complacency to completion as he grows him in his faith is the same God that's at work in you and I today and bringing about sanctification and growth in us. And and he's the one that's doing the work to bring this about. One of our biggest struggles is that we don't think God moves fast enough. One writer says it like this, God does what he promises, but sometimes so gradually that we don't see his faithfulness. This is frequently God's way to be faithful in little and even little by little. It might help our faith if we would fasten our eyes more on the fact than the degree of God's faithfulness or its speed we easily lose sight of what Yahweh has done by demanding too much too soon. I think this is a great summary of the life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We forget how many years had to pass in their life for them to continue to grow as God moved them. We've got to fix our eyes more on the fact than the degree of his faithfulness. For God to bring about completion in Jacob, he takes him back to the place of his youth, this place called Bethel. And when God calls him back to Bethel, Jacob knows why God is calling him there. I want you to see verse three again. The God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. You see, there was something special about this place called Bethel. It reminded Jacob of 
who God is. John Calvin says it like this. God chooses and assigns Bethel rather than any other place for Jacob's sanctuary because the very sight of it would greatly avail to take away terror when he would remember that there the glory of the Lord had been seen by him. Can you think of places in your life where just going back to that place, just the sight of it and the smells and the senses just take you back and remind you of God's faithfulness to you? Can you think of places like that? For me, um, I tend to be pretty nostalgic and sentimental. Whenever I, wanna, whenever I like to go somewhere that I used to live, I like to go and see places I used to, used to frequent. And um, so I can be sentimental and nostalgic. My wife likes to make fun of that quality in me. And because uh, I take her along for these kinds of things. And a couple of years ago, I think it was exactly about two years ago now, um, I was just struggling, just struggling with certain things and some personal things, but also um, it was around the time where I think Gary had gotten a new diagnosis or a new scan that wasn't a good scan. And I was just really struggling personally, and so I, I wanted to get out of town for a couple of days and just go see a couple of friends up in Dallas that I knew pretty well and just talk and pray and that sort of thing. And so I went to go see these friends, and while I was there, I went and visited a couple of different places that remind me of God's faithfulness. And so one of the places I went was this place here. Can you guess why that's significant to me? This is a place where I got engaged on this little bridge in a little park in Dallas. And you're asking like, well, where's your wife? Well, she wasn't on this trip with me. <laughs> so I got this picture for her to see. But this is the place where I proposed to my wife in this little park in, in Dallas, close to downtown Dallas. And so just going back to that spot, just reminds me the good blessing that my wife is to me and that God's, God's faithful. And just being there and seeing the place brings back all those memories. And the second place I went to that, those couple of days was this uh, house right here that I spent a lot of time in. I lived in this house when I, was in, uh, when I was a student at UT Arlington. This house is across the street from the university. And this house is what made it possible for me to come to Texas. Because the church I worked at owned this house and they let interns live there for free and so this house is what brought me to Texas. And I had just lifelong friendships built in this place and um, amazing memories in this place. And so here I am out on the street in front of this house in my car, just staring at the house. Probably seemed creepy to the people that were inside but I'm sure their fears were gone once I pulled my phone out and snapped a photo, you know? <laughs> but just looking at this place and, and being reminded of the memories that took place in, in this house, and, and my room was on the top right-hand side of the house there. And also thinking about all the sleepless nights of wondering what my future might look like. And just got overwhelmed with gratitude of God's faithfulness. Reminded that he's writing a better story than what I could write. And so God, God calls Jacob back to this place called Bethel. God called him back home. How is God calling us out of complacency and apathy and boredom and towards 
reinvigoration and revitalization and growth and sanctification? Will you answer the call to return back to Bethel and come home? Let's pray. God, thank you for your sovereignty. Thank you that you know what we don't know. And God, thank you that we, are, um, that we can worship you and trust you. And God, we know that there's so many things that you want to stir in us as we think about our own complacency and apathy and just sheer boredom at times with Christianity. We pray that you would reinvigorate our faith, revitalize our faith, revive us in our hearts and our minds, and continue to bring us to completion in the same way that you did in the lives of these people that we read about. God, we thank you, we praise you for the work that you're doing in us individually, but also us corporately as a people, the people of God. We pray this in your name, amen.